G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. I'd experienced God's power and presence so palpably in the midst of her life and death that it almost felt like there wasn't a reason to grieve because I was so convinced that God had been at work and things had worked out exactly as they should have. Nick McKay is the National Director of Neighbour Australia, which helps churches across the country to serve those in need and transform their neighbourhoods. He's also the author of Faith, Death and Pills, which tells the story of his journey to faith the death of his first child and his personal experience of mental health. We'll be talking about his journey from grief to healing. That's Nick McKay, our guest today with my wife Kate and myself Brett Ryan for Focus on the Family Australia. Well, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about the Nick McKay story, not from when you were born, but just a little <laughs> bit forward of that, your journey to faith, mm. but also we're going to unpack this book and your journey of losing your first child. Sure. Yeah, so I grew up in a non-Christian home, though I had Christian kind of heritage. Both of my grandparents uh, were strong believers. My paternal grandfather was a a Methodist minister, Um, but for various reasons, my folks weren't practicing Christians, but Mm -hmm. they sent me to a Christian school and Mm -hmm. we occasionally went to church. Uh, But I guess I would describe myself growing up as a a staunch agnostic. Uh, I was not arrogant enough to think that there wasn't something greater than Mm. what you could see in the natural, uh, but arrogant enough to think that I didn't need to find out exactly what it was. Um, and Or just a young guy. Well, (laughs) yeah, that's right. They're one and the same thing, right? Uh, But God took me on this really quite remarkable journey towards him, and I think it really began when I was invited to help start a youth-run aid and development organization called Oak Tree, uh, and that was a Christian organization. Mm-hmm. But the co-founder, Hugh Evans, who I went to school with, was well aware that I was not a Christian. And indeed, that was like my requirement for getting involved in the first place. As I said, I'm very happy to be involved in this and I'm happy that it's a Christian organization, but I want it to be a place that welcomes people of all faiths and no faith. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. I was the kind of resident non-Christian um, right. at Oak Tree. You were the maverick. I was indeed. And it was fascinating. Like, I have so much gratefulness for the grace and forgiveness that was extended to me by the Christians who were present in Oak Tree at the time. Now, looking back, because I would have been a pain in the bum. Um, <laughs> really, I was I was always poking the bear and I was always asking the hard questions and being objectionable. Um, and for but the most part- good. I guess so, be, right? To be honest, it, can it be. helps people grow and solidify in the, what they think. <laughs> so, I was doing them a favour, you is what you say? absolutely God, doing well, them a favour. Wonderful. Thank you. You've made me feel better about myself. <laughs> uh, but it was, a, it was a really life-changing experience because 
I witnessed what it looked like for uh, young people who professed their faith in Christ to actually live that out mm-hmm. um, in a way that was authentic and tangible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the opportunity to travel to South Africa um, as part of our work and, and witness some of our projects there. Uh, and actually, it was probably my time in South Africa that was the most transformational for me. Um, yeah. I was I was introduced, I think, to a, a different presentation um, of Christianity. I think sometimes in Australia, um, and particularly historically, we can get so caught up in our denominations and our denominational difference and our Mm. theological difference that we sometimes hold on to that even more strongly than we do to our Christian faith and to Christ. Yes, the hills to die on. Indeed. Indeed. And that always irked me as a non-Christian. And I think it was actually a significant barrier to my coming to faith. And that's changing, I'm I'm delighted to say. But when I went to South Africa and, and would ask people, you know, if they said they were Christian, I'd always then ask them, well, what denomination are you? Because I'm looking for a debate because I was a debater. Um, And they would look at me blankly as Mm. if, well, what do you mean by that? Not because they weren't part of a denomination, but because it didn't actually matter in the context of their faith. We're more alike than we are different. So much. just to follow Jesus. Exactly. If we've got a glimpse of that, we would have so much more um, movement and so much unity would Mm -hmm. really help the body of Christ. I totally agree. You know, I think it it reminds me of uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17, 23, his final prayer before the crucifixion as he prays that we as his believers would be one as he is one um, with the Father. And and in that, that the world would know that the Father sent his Son for us, right? And so I think there's actually one of the most powerful examples or vehicles for Christian witness is unity across the body of Christ. But it's also one of the most detrimental and damaging things that we can do in failing to behave in unity. Uh, So, yeah, I witnessed a lovely kind of manifestation of that in South Africa. And then I also met my wife, which was really helpful because she was a beautiful kind of advertisement for what it looked like to live an integrated, holistic faith that really just impacted every part of her Mm. life. Um, And I also then had my eyes open to the fact that the desire and the passion, I think, that I'd always had for justice Mm -hmm. um, and that sense of, like, what is right and seeking to... uh, to address what's not. Yeah. Uh, I'd always connected that with uh, a kind of path that would lead me into a career in law. Um, and so mm. I studied law at university and all that sort of thing. Reading yeah. your bio, you've yeah. got an arts law degree that you've never used. Correct. That's right. <laughs> yeah, probably the most helpful subject that I did that I've kept using is contracts, but I did very badly at that. So I wish I'd paid more attention because I actually <laughs> now make use of it. But uh, I think as the more I studied, the more I realised that the legal profession, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, has very little to do with uh, what is right and what is just. Mm. Um, and at its best it does, but at its worst it can be the exactly the opposite. And part of my journey, I think, to faith was realising that this deep desire or hunger for justice was actually something that God had put in me from the very beginning and that mm-hmm. that is part of the Father's heart. And yeah. so when I came to faith, I kind of had this beautiful realisation that Everything that I'd already been passionate about and it had led me to, to my time with Oak Tree and opened my eyes to a much wider and more diverse and challenging and beautiful and complicated world was actually all kind of a reflection uh, of who God is and, yeah. and him kind of leading me back to himself. So mm. it was, a, yeah, it was, it's been a beautiful journey. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Now, you mentioned you met your now wife, mm-hmm. Dawn. Tell us a little bit about that. So, I 
Um, I originally met Dawn very briefly, 2005. I went over to South Africa with Oak Tree and we met just at the airport um, as the rest of the team was flying home and I was staying behind. Um, she'd been made aware of our work through a visit that my friend Hugh did to her church. I didn't go to that because I was not a Christian at the time and I had no interest in going to church. Um, so I only met her at the airport. Uh, the rest of the team went home. Uh, we all went out for lunch, those who were remaining. Uh, I was not very pleased about having to stay around in South Africa for an extra day. Um, I was still nursing a broken heart because I'd come from the US where I'd broken up with my girlfriend there. Um, and I was less than charming, it would be fair to say. <laughs> Um, Dawn has used other words to describe me, which I won't use um, <laughs> no, for the no, purpose of recording. A, uh, yeah, yeah, but they're not complimentary. Uh, and so nothing happened in that meeting and we were aware of each other. She went on to become the inaugural director of Oak Tree in South Africa. So we were aware of each other for the next couple of years. Right. But did nothing together. And then I went, um, after I'd graduated from my law degree, took a year off, did some more work with Oak Tree, and then took some time to travel. And I had this passion for uh, using music for social change. Uh, and I'd done a bit of that work through Oak Tree, and we'd done some amazing work with a, a Zulu choir from South Africa and gone over there and recorded with them and brought them to Australia. It had been this incredible journey. Are you a musician as well? Uh, sort of. Mm. I'm, I'm more a kind of producer and kind of behind the scenes, yep. though I have been known to rap, but that I, I will spare, I'll spare you that um, yeah. in this particular <laughs> instance. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But my, my wife is actually the, the real musician. Um, but I, yes, yeah, so I was in, I was in London. This is an incredible story. I was in London and I, I knew that I wanted to do something around music and social change. The only place I've been involved in that was South Africa. The only person I knew who was working then in the South African music industry was Dawn. So I had this old email address that someone had given me um, for her. I'm in London doing a bit of work in a restaurant and doing an internship. And I went down to the local internet cafe. That was when you could still, like the way we've come with technology yes, in yes, the last 10 years. Huge, is isn't it? Ridiculous. So I paid a pound for an hour and I sent this email to this random address that was probably five, 10 years old with very little hope that I was going to get a response. On the very day that I sent that email, uh, Dawn was in a music studio in South Africa and everything was falling apart. And she was like, I'm just going to get out of here and take some time away. And I think they'd been joking about emails that people were receiving from um, Nigerian princes who were, who were with offering millions of dollars. Right? Yeah. And she was like, I'm just going to go and check my old Yahoo address because who knows? Like, maybe I do have distant Nigerian relatives wow. who want to give me millions of dollars. Um, and it was the very day I'd sent her the email. She hadn't checked it in five years. Um, and she logs in and at the top of her inbox is my email. Uh, and wow. she wrote back and said, uh, yes, I remember who you are. She didn't tell me how terrible I'd been in our first interaction, which was very gracious of her. Um, and she said, yes, I'm working in the music industry. And if you were interested, then come to Joburg, which is where she was, and we'll see what we can do. So it was just this, what can only be described as a God-orchestrated series of events. Yeah. And yeah. so I went to South Africa. We met. I was far more charming the second time. Um, and one thing led to another. We decided to start a relationship and an organisation at the same time. No, I don't recommend it in retrospect, but it's been a really beautiful journey. Were as you a Christian before then? No, I wasn't. So I still wasn't a Christian. At that so point. she started dating you as a non-Christian. She did. We Absolutely. are not highlighting that no, as being a recommendation, but <laughs> no, nonetheless, no, you'll I, hear these one stories, <laughs> but they're not the. It's not the journey for the majority. I agree with that. In many ways, I wish that. I had been a Christian at the time, and yet I'm also aware that had she not been open to dating me when I wasn't, I think God would have found a way, because he always does, yeah. right? But 
I am constantly challenged in my own personal journey as to the uniqueness of how God can work and how he has a really quite remarkable plan for each of us that might not go exactly according to what we think it's going to. Yeah. Our guest today is Nick McKay, the National Director of Neighbour Australia, and he's the author of a book, Faith, Death and Pills. We'll be talking about that more right after this break. You're listening to Focus on the Family, Australia. The Word for Today is Australia's most widely read daily devotional, designed to give you practical teaching to keep you focused on your relationship with Jesus. Read it online or subscribe to the free printed edition at thewordfortoday.com.au. Welcome back to Focus on the Family Australia. I'm Brett Ryan, along with my wife, Kate. We're speaking to Nick McKay, the National Director of Neighbour, and we'll be talking about his journey of his faith and the loss of his first child. So, Nick, we were talking earlier about, at this point, you weren't a Christian. Hmm. So how far along in your journey of dating with Hmm. um, Dawn Hmm. did you become a Christian? Yeah, it took a couple of years, and she was very patient with me um, and somehow managed to have at least tell me that she had no expectation that I would come to faith. Though I think she was more than a little bit delighted um, when I did, and understandably mm-hmm. so. Uh, it actually happened. So it was, a, it was a process. We started going to church together in South Africa when I was there. Um, I enjoyed it, which was a, as much a surprise to me mm-hmm. as anyone. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't until we actually then came back to Australia and Dawn then moved over here initially for our work that we were doing together that we started attending a church in Richmond um, here in Melbourne and yeah, very, very soon thereafter, I made a decision, and uh, and it was really the culmination, I think, of a lot of work that God had been doing on me over a number of years, yeah, yeah. Um, and a long and winding journey during which He had demonstrated a huge amount of patience um, that I didn't deserve. Um, but that's that's yeah. part None of, of that's do. grace, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. So you got married, yes, and starting life together, mm-hmm. and discovered. That Dawn was pregnant. Yes, we did. Yeah, so that was in 2012, um, and obviously overjoyed about that, and um, and very expectant for our first child. Uh, and then all was going well up until about kind of 19, 20 weeks uh, into the pregnancy, and then a series of different things happened that made it clear that uh, that not all was well, and mm. Dawn ended up in hospital. Uh, and on strict bed rest for five weeks, um, at which point we were very hopeful that despite it being a really challenging circumstance, we'd be able to kind of stay there for as long as necessary through to be able to carry the baby to term. Um, But unfortunately, that wasn't able to happen. And in the end, Dawn gave birth to our our first child, um, our daughter, whose name was uh, Zintle Grace. Um, we called her Zizi. Um, she was born extremely prematurely. She was born at 23 weeks and five days, so wow. about four months prem. Um, and she obviously went then straight into the neonatal intensive care unit at the Women's Hospital here in Melbourne. Uh, and we had a quite remarkable, terrible, beautiful three months with her um, in, yeah. um, in hospital here. Yeah. And as much as you would want the healing and the prayers of many people, mm. it didn't turn out the way that you would hope. No, it didn't. And yet it also kind of did. I think that our 
our journey with her was quite remarkable. And certainly in the midst of those three months when we were in hospital with her, I've rarely experienced God's presence in such a powerful way. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot actually to be said for when we are in those seasons of great challenge um, and so reliant and dependent on him. He's always present but somehow his presence can be more obvious mm. or, or, or his light is clearer in the dark. dark. Right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so it was beautiful, even for all of its, its challenge. And absolutely, we were praying and believing and had friends and family and Christians across the world believing with us uh, for her miraculous healing. All looked like it was heading in the right direction, but eventually her lungs just didn't develop in the way that they mm. that they needed to, and we were told that we needed to turn off the life support. So we did, um, and as I was sharing with you earlier, she um, she died, then she came back to life again, then she died again. It was a quite remarkable kind of last 24 hours of her life mm, yeah. where we saw God's miraculous healing power at work, mm. but we also saw his sovereignty at work and mm. and somehow being able to, to come to terms with that and understand that uh, he is both all powerful and all sovereign mm. uh, and we won't necessarily understand all of the reasons why but that doesn't deplete his power or his love for us yeah. um, so yes she she died at three months old um, and I think it led to a really challenging season thereafter. Because yeah. while uh, it had perhaps been easier to hold on to God in the midst of those three months in hospital, once it was over, so to speak, it was mm. very hard for me personally in particular to know what to do with that. Yeah. Mm. And you were trying to support Dawn mm-hmm. going through her grief. Yep. Um, and in so doing, probably being the man, mm. you might have been caring for her more and not processing your own grief. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I was... I was in denial about the nature of my grief. And in some cases, I had this strange experience where I'd experienced God's power and presence so palpably in the midst of her life and death that it almost felt like there wasn't a reason to grieve because I was so convinced that God had been at work and things had worked out exactly as they should have, which I still believe. But that somehow almost like led me, I was in this kind of strange in-between where I knew that I needed to grieve, but I didn't know how to because I'd yeah. never been taught. And I think a lot of us haven't. Um, mm-hmm. And particularly as men, I think we sometimes find that harder. And on the other hand, believing that things had panned out exactly as they should have. And so there was no need to grieve. Yeah. Uh, and and that led me in this very challenging in-between space uh, that ultimately became quite destructive for me. Right. Um, was, um, yeah. was Dawn able to express what she needed at that time? That's a great question. No, no not really. Mm. I think that we grieved or didn't grieve and kind of processed our own experience quite separately um, mm. for the first, certainly for the first year and probably beyond. And I remember reading not long after Zizi died that something like 80% of marriages end where a couple has experienced the death of a child. Yeah. Um, and I understand why. Yeah. Um, because... Yeah. Uh, Dealing with your own grief and that that extent of grief is hard enough, but trying to do it in the context of a marriage and with everything that that birth itself represents and the significance of it, mm. and in different ways yeah. for the for the woman and the man in that context yeah. too, 
uh, can be very, very challenging. So I'm just, I'm so grateful to God that we were able to, even in our separateness, somehow find each other at different points on the journey yeah. um, and ultimately come together um, around it because it could have gone another way. Praise God for that. Mm. There's tends to be expectations too. Mm-hmm. Expectations of how we should do it. Yep. Expectations even as a spouse of what they should be doing or feeling. If I feel this way, you should feel this way. Totally. To the point where sometimes, I mean, I can say this just as a wife, you know, when you're grieving over something and your spouse isn't grieving the same way, you go, well, why aren't you? Don't you care? Mm. Or why do you not care how I feel? And so you can head down that path. Um, I think, too, for men, the expectation that they should be so strong, as we have discussed earlier, that God is the rock. Correct. Um, And so he is our strength and our weakness. That's right. And so I think that can be stolen Mm -hmm. from men when they feel like they have to be strong when it's really God who has to be strong. And they are allowed Mm -hmm. to grieve. I think giving us permission to grieve well. Absolutely. um, If that means having an enormous cry, yeah. you know, every day <laughs> if yeah. you need to in that process, yeah. that is okay. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I think our world would be a, a whole lot better if all of us, and particularly as men, felt that we had permission to express our emotions mm. uh, in their fullness and also therefore in constructive ways because yeah. the emotions come out in one way or, or another, anger. right? Yep. <laughs> so if it's not grief, then it often does turn to yeah. anger um, or denial or depression or whatever it is. And so it needs to come out some way or other. And I feel like we've perhaps lost a lot of what the Word of God shows us about how we should process our emotions. Mm-hmm. And I particularly go to the Psalms and Psalms of David. Like, here's a man who is called someone after God's own heart, yeah. but is not afraid of a whinge, yeah. right? Um, yeah. it, and in many cases, justified. In some cases, potentially not. Yeah. But regardless, like, he puts it all out there, yeah. the good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah. But it's a beautiful example in many of the Psalms where by expressing the fullness of what he is experiencing and the and the fullness of his emotions, that's what leads him back to God. Yeah, and yeah. It's instead, a freedom. There's a freedom right. in releasing it. Well, there's a beautiful it. psalm where mm-hmm. it talks about darkness is my only friend. Mm-hmm. So you're pretty you're pretty low. Yes. But I, I just think in that setting, he's actually still praying to God to say, yes. so even yes. though there'll be some people listening today who'll be going, well, I've gone through that. Yes. I feel like I'm completely alone. Yep but I'm still laying it before you. Mm. And is that where you were going? You said you went to a dark place. You went yeah. to a, not a healthy place. So yes. unpack that a little bit more about what did that look like? Yeah. I had probably a year after Sinclair's death, I had quite serious suicidal thoughts for a period of time. Um, and it wasn't that I wanted actually to die. It was just that I wanted the darkness of that season to end. And I think that, I can't speak into everybody's situation, obviously, but I feel like a lot of people who get to that point, that's what it is. They just want they just, just want to break, you know, yeah. and see that that's the only way through. And I think I also misinterpreted some expectations or even some interpretations of Scripture when it says that, like, there's power in the tongue, right? Because mm. sometimes, or at least for me, that led me to think I should not name 
what I'm feeling or dealing with because wow. that will give it power, yeah. right? Because there's power in the yeah. tongue. And what I found was exactly the opposite. It was that when I used the power of my tongue to express mm-hmm. what I was feeling yeah. and what and even what I'd been considering, it was then that I was able to see in some cases how absurd it might have been. Um, yeah. Certainly it wasn't what I wanted. Um, and I was able to then take it to God, take it to friends and family, mm. ultimately like take it to professionals who were able to help me. So in that, that was your aha moment. Yeah. And it happened a couple of times. Once when I was having those those really dark thoughts and I expressed it to, to friends and they expressed great concern for me and the extent mm. of their concern surprised me. It shouldn't have. Yeah. But that's part of what made me think, ah, oh, something's not right here if you're yeah. responding this way. And then down the track when I was able to, with Dawn's help, speak to my GP and say, I think I'm actually depressed, right? And I didn't want to say it. Mm. But the moment I did, it felt like it was, you know, chains breaking, this sense of release. Because it's like, yes, all you've done is recognize the truth of what's actually happening. I think that's going to be very good for many men and for their spouses to actually hear that, to actually say, it's okay to not be okay. Absolutely. But it's not okay to stay not okay. Yeah. Our guest today was Nick McKay, National Director of Neighbour Australia, which helps churches across the country to serve those in need and help transform their neighbourhoods. To find out more about the ministry, you can go to the website at neighbour.org. That's N-A-Y-B-A.org. And his book is called Faith, Death and Pills. If something that was said triggered you, please contact us for a free consultation with our pastoral counsellor. This service is only made available because of the generosity of supporters like you, for which we are most grateful. For other resources and to sign up for exclusive content, go to families.org.au. Thank you for joining us today. On behalf of Kate and the rest of the team, I'm Brett Ryan inviting you to tune in to part two of our conversation for Focus on the Family, Australia. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.